Welcome to Pete Care's Stories of Hope and Healing podcast. We have 11 episodes exploring the hope and healing framework. This framework sets the foundation for caring and working with young people in residential care in a way that understands and responds to trauma. The Hope and Healing Framework was written by Encompass Family and Community Proprietary Limited. In this podcast series, you'll be listening to the stories of young people previously in residential care, practitioners with residential care experience, and experts who were part of the advisory group for the Hope and Healing Framework or are specialists in trauma and child protection. All young people on staff have been given a pseudonym to protect their confidentiality. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that episodes may include names and voices of people who have since passed away. Children do well if they can. A lot of the times you'll hear that, well, we tried that or twice, but it actually takes time, repetition. Welcome to the third episode of Pete Care's Stories of Hope and Healing. I'm your host Hayley Holst from Prakademics and in this episode we'll be exploring the concept of development in residential care. You'll be hearing from two young people, Jason and Chantel, as well as Peter and Tony who are very experienced residential care staff members. You will also be hearing from an international expert on trauma and development, Kevin Creedon. We hope that their stories and ideas will bring to life this important element of hope and healing. As this podcast will be shared throughout Queensland, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present and emerging community leaders. We acknowledge the hardships suffered by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and we hope this podcast is sensitive to their experiences. We'd also like to acknowledge the important contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander professionals, Elders and volunteers make within the child protection sector in Queensland. In the Hope and Healing Framework, there are four areas that are recognised as fundamental to the everyday care provided to young people. Our first two episodes discuss safety and nurturance. Today we are turning our attention to development and in the next episode we will explore healing. Each of these foundations of care should inform all interactions with young people during all aspects of care on an everyday basis throughout their journey. Development as a foundation of care is about attention to young people's developmental needs relevant to their age, stage and capacity. This can include their needs for physical and emotional development as well as educational opportunities. For young people in care, development can be influenced by several factors. First, their chronological age may influence their level of development and having an understanding of appropriate development according to chronological age may be helpful for residential care workers. However, young people impacted by trauma will have arrested development in their functioning, which may not correspond to their developmental age or be the same stage for each developmental domain. For example, their physical development may not be in alignment with their emotional, social and cognitive development. Kevin Creedon is an international expert on trauma and their impact on development. He has over 35 years of clinical experience treating children, adolescents and their families working extensively with sexually and physically aggressive youth. Over the past 25 years, his primary focus has been on issues of trauma and attachment difficulties, especially with regard to the neurological impact of trauma on behaviour. Kevin explained to us how trauma may impact the development of critical skills for young people. Oftentimes these kids are missing those basic skills like self-regulation, like perspective taking, like theory of mind, like 
you know, all of those adaptive problem solving, various executive functioning skills, um, kids are missing those because actually their trauma got in the way of developing those skills. And, uh, and I would argue that in essence, what, you know, the job becomes is identifying where the gaps are, because it won't be across the board. It'll be, there'll be aspects of things that kids do really well, you know, and are kind of developmentally on track with and other things where they're still operating like they're two or three years old. And, our job is basically identifying where are the gaps and then essentially going and addressing and backfilling those gaps to give the kids a solid foundation so they can get back on a positive developmental trajectory. Kevin mentioned quite a few concepts there. The first was self-regulation and this relates to emotional know-how, which will be the focus of our sixth episode in this series. He also mentioned perspective taking, which is the ability to see the world through someone else's eyes. Related to this is theory of mind, which is about understanding that other people have unique thoughts and beliefs that will impact their emotions and behaviour. People who lack theory of mind may assume that everyone feels and thinks the same way they do. Perspective taking and theory of mind are important skills for building and maintaining relationships, which is the topic of our fifth episode. Finally, he talked about executive functioning skills, which is the part of the brain responsible for organising, planning and coordinating mental activity, which is also really important for emotional know-how. So the experience of trauma can impact the development of all these skills and the role of residential care staff is to support young people to backfill these gaps. Tony provided an example of how we might see such a developmental gap in young people in residential care. We've had, say, 17-year-olds who would like to be read a bedtime story at night time, and that's not something you would traditionally, you know, associate with someone of that, you know, uh, age group. However, you know, that could possibly speak to the fact that, you know, maybe they missed, you know, some of those um, sort of natural kind of uh, activities, you know, from, from a younger age and, uh, you know, still seek out the third thing that can impact development is exposure to life experiences that may in fact be beyond the chronological age of the child. This may include things such as playing a parental role to younger siblings before coming into care. Tony discussed with us how tricky it can be for young people who want to be normal but have had such a mix of life experiences that impact their development. That can be tricky for young people as well because you know they might may want to try to um, participate or achieve the kind of things that their peers are achieving, um, or potentially even beyond what their peers are achieving, um, into you know seeing what adults are doing because you know maybe young people in care spend too much time with adults as well. That, that could be one of the challenges, but. Um, yeah, I certainly see that that a lot. And um, like, but if they don't have the stable base, you know, by improving on their kind of areas of development over time, like uh, they could be setting themselves up to fail, um, or yeah, just not have the you know emotional maturity to deal with some situations that their peers can. Um, so yeah, I, I see that as a you know a big challenge for young people. Tony highlighted that young people may want to do the same thing as their peers but lack the emotional maturity for some situations. Kevin explained this to us further 
how to differentiate between normal adolescent risk-seeking behaviour and adolescent behaviour for young people who have experienced early trauma. Some of the things we're seeing are just normal adolescent development um, that, you know, any teenager will tend to make uh, clearer, better decisions uh, when they're on their own than when they're with their peers who are doing a bunch of negative things. Um, all teenagers, and particularly teenage boys, will be drawn to high-stimulus situations, even if the source of the high stimulus is something that's a threat to you and that you might want to stay away from. So, you know, the example I would use is like, oh, there's a fight going on over there, and it's like, let's go see. You know, um, someone's, you know, freaking out and tearing up the classroom. Yeah, let's, let's go check that out. I, I mean, there's a there's the draw to a high stimulus situation, which is which is just pretty normal adolescence, where I think it gets confusing with the traumatized kids is they don't have that capacity to just once they're in those situations to kind of modulate in a way that caused them not to make just not just really bad decisions, which any adolescent would do, uh, but the same bad decisions over and over and over again. It's. And I think that's the difference. Any adolescent's going to screw up sometime. Um, the hope is, is that when you screw up, you kind of learn from that, and the next time out, you make some adjustment, even if it doesn't totally solve the problem. What we see in our guys is that they will screw up, and they'll repeat that process over and over again. And a lot of it's because they don't have that capacity to pull back, take perspective, and not get caught up in that. And some of that, that neurological impact of trauma uh, in terms of executive functioning skills, uh, in terms of their ability to organize their thinking, in terms of their ability to not perseverate and get stuck. What gets talked about as cognitive flexibility, essentially not doing the same stupid thing over and over again, even when it's not working for you. Um, all of those things are the things we tend to see much more in the kids with significant trauma histories as opposed to just the usual adolescent decision-making process. This explanation from Kevin also relates to Chantelle's comments in our last episode on nurture that highlighted how important it is to feel that you have people that stand by you in spite of the decisions you make. Kevin's explanation highlights that it is normal for adolescents to be drawn to risky situations and make unsafe choices and he went on to reinforce Chantelle's point about the importance of consistent caregiving in spite of the young person's behaviours. But Chantelle also emphasised that the rules and regulations in residential care may impact on opportunities for young people to do developmentally normal activities. How are you meant to live a normal life if you can't have friends come over on a weekend? You can't go out shopping with your friends, you can't go to Movie World without getting two weeks prior permission, so the day before when they call, can we go out? You know, it's not very fair on the kid, like, they're missing out on life. Like, a lot of kids stay the same, like... They don't get to live a normal life, like it takes years for us to do anything like a normal kid at our age would do, which isn't fair. The Hope and Healing Framework highlights that, in some areas, further development will not occur until earlier functional stages are achieved. Given this, it is essential that staff meet their needs and tailor opportunities to support their developmental needs. Tony discussed how working in residential care changed his understanding of what this means. I certainly used to have this notion where, you know, so, you know, the child's here, 
the adults here, you know, we want to kind of meet them halfway, you know, so that they can come to us. But, you know, um, very quickly, I guess I learned that that was flawed. Uh, so obviously, you know, we need, to, we need to kind of go back to wherever the child is sitting and then walk alongside them. Tony's example of going back to where the child is sitting and walking alongside them is a great analogy of what it means to meet their developmental needs and tailor opportunities to the individual young person. Another residential care worker, Peter, spoke about the importance of identifying the gaps in development in order to support young people to progress their developmental age. I see that we get upset quite easily when kids who are, let's say, 15 and they're not doing what 15-year-olds do. But I think on the surface that's where we come across, but I think we have to dig deeper and ask questions, you know, well, what is it? Like, why doesn't a kid go to school, for example? Okay. So it could be a range of different factors. Um, a lot of it could be, well, maybe they don't have good social development. Um, maybe it is their cognitive development. Um, you know, like, we know that even trauma is going to affect their physical development, particularly their brain. So a lot of those aspects I think we need to be really aware of in terms of, you know, how do we do our care plan or how do we interact, how do we set goals. So when a young person's behaviour is not consistent with their chronological age, it is a good indication that there has been an interruption in their development in one of the domains. Peter highlighted the importance of identifying that domain and addressing it in their care plan. We were interested in how we do that. The Hope and Healing Framework emphasises that opportunities which may provide turning points in development are important. These may be small incidents or experiencing positive relationships. Jason highlighted that young people must be engaged and interested in progressing in the relevant domain. A lot of weaknesses when it comes to self-development may not be um, interest of the young person to develop, like sweeping a floor. You know, this may not want to develop that or washing dishes. Might just say they're going to get a, they'll be like, oh, I'll be right, I'll get a dishwasher when I'm older. Jason had some great ideas on ways to get the young person interested and engaged in their own development. Depending on what their um, weaknesses are, it, it could be something as simple as cooking. They don't know how to cook. You know, getting them not even to cook by themselves. Get them to love food, because without you know without loving food, you can't cook. You have to have a love for food, I guess. So you know, get them. Maybe you look up some recipes yourself. So then you can cook some magnificent food, and or magnificent meals, and provide that for the young person. They'll get their taste buds going. They'll want to know how you cook that sort of thing. Next time you get them to help you, or yeah, can you do this, do that? And they'll, they'll see how you cook that. Uh, you know, when cooking's not necessarily hard, so they'll just you know go, oh yeah, that's not hard. I should I should be able to do that. And then they'll make it themselves, sort of thing. Jason's ideas were similar to Peter's perspective. For Peter, it is important to know the goal you are trying to achieve with regards to development. Are you trying to teach a young person a new skill? Or are you trying to get them to contribute to the daily routine of the household? Once you learn a skill, so if you learn how to do the dishes, for example, why do you need to keep doing it? So you might as well give them a certificate and say, well done, you've passed, you know how to do that. Whereas if you want them to continue that, then that's a different goal altogether. So one's about learning, one's about contributing. Peter went on to discuss ways that you can encourage young people to contribute. 
and the ideas sounded very similar to Jason's approach for teaching cooking. Well, I create the opportunity by going, I'm doing my dishes and cutting, or cooking and I'm cutting things up. Oh, can you pass me that? Yeah, thanks. Are they contributing? Mm. Yeah. I need help with the garbage bag. Can you help me with that? So I don't need to bribe the kid or give them incentive. They're naturally doing it. So both Jason and Peter emphasise the importance of modelling and relationships in supporting young people's development. Jason also highlighted that you need to draw on young people's strengths. You've got to identify what you're good at, your strengths and your weaknesses. And then you can even use sometimes your strengths to build on your weaknesses. And it's about, you know, trying to evaluate exactly how to go about that. Coming up with, once again, with like a plan. Finally, Peter emphasised the importance of repetition for development. Difficulty is connecting with that young person, understanding where they're at. So I think it's about adjusting that and being versatile. A lot of the times you'll hear that, oh, we tried that and we tried it once or twice. But it actually, and you think in terms of the brain and building those connections and to create habits takes time, repetition. Um, So I think in a lot of that time, we're kind of the stumbling block in terms of helping children change. The Hope and Healing Framework also emphasises the importance of attending to educational opportunities for young people in care. Tony spoke about young people who may be disengaged from school and discussed how the goal may be to get them engaged with learning rather than school per se. If a kid can't fit in the school system, then that's our responsibility to think of ways of developing their skills. Um, A lot of people think keeping kids bored is the answer. I think it's about engaging the kids and, you know, I'm not talking about movies or that, but creative ways of engaging kids while they're at home. Maybe it's the social aspect of it. Maybe it's, um, you know, you're doing you know, a, a Monopoly game and you're teaching them, you know, how to count or take turns. They're all learning moments and I think we forget about that. We, you know, we get out pieces of paper, do this, that's school. Um, I'd rather help a young person get fascinated by learning. And then, you know, in my experience, that what I see is that people learn throughout their life. So you can get an education, mm-hmm. but maybe right now is not the right time for them to focus on that because they've just lost everything and they're in pain and they don't believe that they've got the ability to, to be someone. We would like to finish the episode with the phrase that Kevin Creedon said he always starts with when thinking about development. The notion that, uh, you know, and this comes from a phrase, is that, you know, Ross Green uses in terms of children do well if they can. To conclude this episode, we have a few questions for reflection. For young people in your care, do you understand where they are in their developmental trajectory across domains such as emotional skills, social skills and thinking skills? How is your service or program working with each young person to support them to move to the next stage of development? And have you asked young people in your care what skills they want to develop next? Thank you for listening to our third episode of Pete Care's Stories of Hope and Healing. Our next episode will be exploring another fundamental need, which is healing.
I think it's unique for every person uh, what their struggles are. Healing is really about having a new end to a difficult story. listening to this episode we hope you enjoyed it and gained a better insight into what the concepts mean in your day-to-day roles with children and young people we are indebted to the time and wisdom of our interviewees and would like to thank the create foundation for their support with interviewing the young people be sure to check out our show notes for additional resources for the episode you can also check out our other episodes in the stories of hope and healing series through your favorite podcast app or by visiting peakcare.org.au or pracademics.org.au. This has been produced and narrated by Pracademics Inc. All music has been produced by me, Matthew Schrader.